We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. But before I read that, uh, I grew up listening to Paul Harvey. Uh, I know a lot of you know who he is. He passed away a few years ago. He famously told the rest of the story about hundreds of famous people that you knew their accomplishments, but you didn't actually know the process to get to that accomplishment. And today, I actually want to take a couple of minutes and tell you the rest of the story about the Philippian church. Not how they got to where they were. You get that in Acts and in the book of Philippians. But what became of them after the book of Philippians. But to do that, I need to take a couple of minutes and tell you about an old man named Polycarp. When Jesus gave the great commission to the disciples, he said, Go and make disciples of all nations. And he was telling them how to build the church. And he had actually already shown them how that was to be, how, how to do that. How do you make disciples? Well, he did it, but he called a group of 12 guys. And within that group of 12, he had a group of three men, Peter, James, and John, that he invested in, that he taught them the scriptures. Not only did he teach them the scriptures, he taught them what it meant to live it out and how to pass that message along to other people. How do you pray? You find the disciples, Lord, teach us to pray. It's an essential skill for ministry, and maybe skill is the wrong word for it. It's something every Christian needs to wrestle with. How do I talk to God? How do I learn to hear from God? What does it mean to be part of the people of God? Well, the way that Jesus passed that message and those teachings along was through the apostles. And not only did he have 12, the scripture tells us and describes they actually worked within an even bigger group of 72 people. And I said to Lauren, this is, I have, I'm not terrible at math, but I just don't think sometimes. And I said to Lauren, I said, why didn't he make that number divisible by 12? And she said, he did. It's six. And I said, oh, all right. In any case, each of the 12 had six guys to invest in. And Polycarp is the best recorded instance of someone who was discipled directly by an apostle. You can see the fruit of their faithfulness and obedience in the fact that Christianity spread all over the ancient world. They were obedient to the Lord and God blessed their faithfulness and the church grew and people worshiped Jesus Christ. But if you're a little bit of a history nerd, we know the name of one of their disciples. It's a guy named Polycarp. He was discipled directly by the apostle John. John was the last apostle to die. So his disciple Polycarp is the last in this kind of progression that we have directly tied to the the disciples that Jesus had. And Polycarp became the bishop of Smyrna. So he is discipled by John and then becomes very naturally a leader in the church, carrying that on for the next generation, faithfully teaching more people within the church, raising up more leaders. And he served the church well into his 80s. He was arrested as an old man during a time of intense persecution from Rome. And I'll pause right there. Uh, Smyrna is not an ancient city that we think about a lot, but actually if you look at Revelation in the letters to the seven churches, Smyrna is one of those churches. And Jesus says to Smyrna, you are about to experience some intense persecution. When Polycarp read Revelation and being discipled by the Apostle John, he probably would have been one of the first people to read it. That would have been a very personal message to him, and it foreshadows exactly how he died. So the the Smyrna church does experience intense persecution. Polycarp, as this old man, is arrested somewhere around the age of 86. 
We're not sure exactly if he might have even been in his 90s. Uh, but he says something. I'll, I'll read you what he says in a minute. You know he's at least 86, probably older. And so the, the, the Romans at the time are beginning to realize that there are things about Christianity that are not very Roman. And so they start to look for church leaders and they go to arrest this old man. And he actually, when the soldiers come to his house to arrest him, he knows what they're there for. He knows that they're about to arrest him. He knows from Jesus that he's going to experience intense persecution. And so what does he do? He calls for refreshments for the soldiers. Get these guys something to eat, something to drink. This is actually, I think, not a bad strategy if you're ever about to be arrested. And, and it, who knows? In any case, it, it caused them to pause. And they sat down and they took some refreshment. And he said, would you mind if I pray for an hour before you guys haul me off to jail or whatever it is you're going to take me off to. And so they, they agreed. And within, it's called the martyrdom of Polycarp, that you find the entire story about how he died. It says that they said yes to that too. So they said, go ahead, old man, go ahead and pray. Well, you know, we'll, we'll arrest you when you're done praying. And so he took not one hour, but he prayed for two hours, standing on his feet, and he prayed for everyone he had ever met, both small and great, reputable and disreputable. So he didn't care if you were a good person or a bad person. He prayed for you as he was about to get hauled off to jail, as well as the entire universal church throughout the world. So he covered it all. People, the church. By the time he was done praying, the soldiers who came to arrest him regretted bothering such a devout old man. Nevertheless, they dragged him in front of a judge who threatened him with all kinds of tortures in an effort to get him to deny Christ. And you can actually read what they did to him. He died as a result of this sort of inquisition. But when he said to publicly revile Christ, these are his words. He said, for 86 years, I have served him. And he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Polycarp dies a martyr, faithful all the way to the end. And the reason I'm telling you about him is he writes a letter to the Philippian church. And so if you want to know how is the Philippian church doing a hundred years after the book of Philippians, Polycarp's letter gives us some insight into that. The reality is, not only are they a healthy church in the New Testament, one of the few churches that Paul doesn't need to really lay down the law with, but they actually maintained their health for somewhere around a hundred years after Paul wrote this letter, after Paul was no longer able to disciple them. They continued to want to grow in the faith. So the church wrote to Polycarp, this prominent leader in the early church that's well-known, and they asked him to teach them. What would you say to our church? Which is incredible because it means they don't become proud that we are the church that was founded by the Apostle Paul. You know, they, they probably threw a party for being 100 years old, right? That's what we, you know, 100 years is a big deal, so naturally they would have some sort of centennial celebration. But they don't become inward and obsessed, we are the Philippian church founded by Paul, at 100 years, they recognize they still need to grow. And so they write Polycarp and say, what would you, as a faithful teacher, have to say to us? What can we be doing now? 
Polycarp's letter in reply is primarily a collection of verses from Scripture as he encourages the church to faithfulness. And he, to, to give evidence that they asked him for this, he says, I'm writing these things about righteousness, brothers, not on my own initiative, but at your request. They remained wanting to grow in the faith. And Polycarp tells them to be faithful to what they had learned. And this is another quote from his letter. He says, For neither I nor anyone like me is able to replicate the wisdom of the blessed and glorious Paul. When he was with you, he accurately and reliably taught the word of truth to those who were there at the time. And when he was absent, he wrote you letters. If you carefully peer into them, you will be able to be built up in the faith that was given to you. And this is a sign that the entire church recognized the authority of Paul in teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as he quotes scripture at them over and over throughout, I was impressed. Some people outside the church say that the New Testament church wasn't at all like you or I would think it was, that there were very many different types of Christianity. They didn't have a high view of Scripture like we do today. That's actually not accurate at all. If you look at Polycarp's letter, all he does is quote, not the Old Testament, but the New Testament as the authoritative word of God to the church in the first century. That's exactly what we believe, that this book was inspired, that if you want to grow as a believer, you need to hear the words of God in Scripture and be part of the church. And so Polycarp's letter is an incredible testament that this is what the early church believes. And many of the themes of his letter echo Paul's letter. He, he begins talking about the gospel of grace preached to the church. He says, you have been saved by a gracious gift, not from works, but by the will of God through Jesus Christ. Similarly, because of that grace, it should inspire humility and service to others. And just as Paul described himself as a bond slave, and he holds Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples of faithful servants in chapters 2, so Polycarp urges the church to, quote, serve as God's slaves in fear and truth. Just as Paul says to work out your salvation in fear and trembling, serving each other with humility, serve as God's slaves in fear and truth. Polycarp also exhorts them to loving fellowship. He says they are to follow the example of the Lord, loving the brotherhood, caring for one another, united in the truth, waiting on one another in the gentleness of the Lord, looking down on no one. And as Paul exhorted them to be alert against false teaching, so Polycarp describes them as faithful in the truth. And Polycarp writes, I am confident that you are well trained in the sacred scriptures and that nothing is hidden from you. Which is incredible, because not only did the people directly taught by Paul become grounded in the scriptures, a hundred years later, most, if not all, of those people are dead. The average age in the, in the first century is well below 40. If you were 40, you were considered an old man. And so, when, Paul, when Polycarp rather says to them that I know that you are well trained in the sacred scriptures... It means that they trained the next generation and probably the generation after that. It's an incredible testament to the faithfulness of the church. And I believe that this book of Philippians in Scripture shows us what a healthy church looks like. And I, up until this point, you might say, he's preaching from Polycarp. That's actually not what I'm going to do. The point is, faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ has a lasting impact. 
And I believe as we as a church desire to be faithful to the gospel, if we, a hundred years down the road, want a legacy, the key to it is found in fidelity to the gospel of Jesus Christ for each of us individually and for our entire church. And so my hope is that a hundred years from now, our church will be celebrating not our legacy, but the gospel of Jesus Christ that we know and believe and that we will be faithful to teach the scriptures and to build a fellowship that's based upon the grace that we have through Jesus Christ. So as we turn to the book of Philippians to end the book of Philippians, we're going to be looking at three verses today. And I believe that you can see how they, as, as the church in Philippi embraced the gospel, they embraced fellowship, and they faithfully spread the gospel. And as I close the book, I want to point out the last evidence that the gospel creates joyful fellowship. We are looking at three verses today, but just because we're at the end of the book, I would urge you, don't ignore them or feel like they are unimportant, because we believe that every word of Scripture is inspired and nothing is unimportant. So look with me at Philippians 4. We're going to be in verses 21 through 23. If you need a Bible, you can find this on page 982 of the Blue Bibles or on page 1167 in the large print Burgundy Bibles. And I would urge you to look at this with me as as we read. Just three verses here. Paul says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. In this final message on the Philippians, I want to demonstrate that the gospel compels us to always be a growing, welcoming fellowship centered upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not the culture of our church, not our desire for a legacy, but centered upon Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that our church will seek unity in the gospel that transcends all the things that may divide us and that we would desire a global fellowship through missions. So I entitled this message, Gospel Fellowship, Then and Now. And after reading these three verses, you might wonder, where on earth does he see fellowship in just a closing greeting? Well, to start with, again, I believe every verse of the scripture is inspired. And so it means that even as you see someone saying goodbye at the end of the letter, There are things there that we can and should learn, and it's good and right to pause and look at it. And so whenever you see a word that's repeated in Scripture, it's good to pause and meditate and think about what that means. And so the word here for greeting actually literally means to embrace. Jesus used this word in Matthew 5, 46 to 47. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. Pause right there. He's talking about having a loving relationship with people around you. Then from there, he says, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? So greeting is a sign of relationship, and he's drawing a parallel between loving people and greeting them. He says, do not even Gentiles do the same. The reality is, This sort of greeting is a sign of fellowship. It's an indication of love and affection. Greeting indicates that you actually care about someone. 
And you can see from the end of Philippians that this love permeates the church, not just locally where the Philippians are, but everywhere where Paul had spread their gospel fellowship, regardless of whether or not they had ever physically met. Here in Philippians, you see Paul instruct them to greet every saint, that the brothers with him greeted the church in Philippi, and that all the saints where he was greeted the church. And all of this love is found because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So look with me quickly through each of these groups. First, the gospel fellowship is open. Gospel fellowship is open. You can see this in 21a. It says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. And when Reverend Leonard was here about a month ago, as the candidate for First Baptist of Grand Blanc, he pointed out that Paul uses the word all a lot in this book. In chapter 1, he thanks God for all the church, and he says that all are partakers with me of grace, and he yearns for them all. Gospel fellowship is inclusive. No one is left out. It's one of the ways that unity is stressed throughout this book. Now, Paul is extending his love and fellowship to every saint in Christ through the Philippian church. And you find that as we have fellowship with missionaries, and this is something that happened just a few months ago, uh, as we collected sign language books for the Clemmers who serve in Congo, Ann Clemmer sent us an email back thanking us and celebrating the fellowship that we had with people that we have never met on the other side of the world. Now, here's the thing. We celebrated that fellowship in part through making an announcement. Now, I I have never heard of anyone saying, I went to church today and the announcements were incredible. That's just, you know, it's kind of an unfortunate part. We, We have to announce things just so people know what's going on so that they can participate. And fellowship is critical. So in a way, it's, it's an important thing that we do. Word should not just spread through the announcements. My hope would be good news from a missionary would spread through this church like gossip. That we would be so excited that we had been a blessing to people in Africa that we would call each other, that we would have joy, that it's a small thing to share sign language books, but at the same time, it's a sign of our global fellowship and our love with people that we've never met because we all believe in the same Jesus. And we want to help them do further outreach with people who may not know the gospel. And so we spread that news mostly through announcements, but my hope is that we would actually spread good news like that person to person, that we would have real fellowship, that that would actually encourage and energize our church towards other creative ways to also serve the global community, to also think about how can we have a legacy to spread the gospel in places where it isn't currently going so that people would know of the First Baptist Church of Holly, that we love the gospel of Jesus Christ so much that we thoughtfully and creatively came up with ways to spread it even further. If that sounds like something that you would like to do, I would encourage you to try and come to our next missions board meeting. This is something that we have an opportunity to bless the ministers and ministries that we currently have and support. And I just got to meet the people that that serve up in Flint at, at our crisis pregnancy center. And it's the same kind of thing. We love the Lord, and so we're meeting a real ministry need. And I would encourage you, if that's something that you feel like, wow, I'd like to contribute to that, at least in prayer. I'd like to better understand where our missions money goes. I would encourage you to be involved you have an opportunity 
to do exactly what Paul is talking about here. So the, the fellowship here is an open fellowship. It's an inclusive fellowship. If you are in Christ, no one should be excluded here. The question is, is this true of our church? When we get news, does it actually go to everyone? Or are we a church that are, we talk to our friends, to people that we have common interests with, and we may or may not know the people who are older than us or younger than us or first service people, uh, you know, talking to second service people here. Do you know the people that come earlier? Or is our church somewhat divided because we aren't intentional about fellowship? You know, if we all believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that should transcend musical styles. That should transcend all kinds of stuff. We should be able to partner and work together. So is this true of our church? And it's not enough that you and I come and feel very welcome and very loved. The question is, how do other people who come here feel? If you take the book of Philippians seriously, you know that you are to put the interests of other people above your own. So the question is, are there people who attend but aren't actually part of that fellowship? Are there people who come and visit and don't feel the warmth and love of the gospel? Or... Are we actually inclusive? How good are we at drawing people in and sharing in the unity that comes through the gospel? We should ask ourselves, not what can I get out of the church, but what are we doing for the people who come here so that they are blessed by our love, so that they share in the fellowship of Christ? Paul also demonstrates that this fellowship is a two-way street. It's not just... How is our church doing to spread this love? But are we receiving it from other people surrounding us and globally? So the second point today is gospel fellowship is reciprocal. Gospel fellowship is reciprocal. Paul says in the second half of this verse, the brothers who are with me greet you. And the language of family is a reminder that even people who are not physically related to us are family within the church. And probably these are people that the Philippian church already knows, people that served with Paul when he was there, and people like Timothy that went back and forth as a messenger for Paul. People who knew this church loved it, and they desired to stay in touch with it. So similar to when Lauren and I see our friends from Moody Church occasionally, or we email, or we text with them, we love the fellowship that we had. So even though we're no longer physically there, we stay in touch and continue to care about the people and continue to pray for them. In the same way, people who have retired and moved away and moved to Florida or people who have had job changes and had to leave, many people continue to be in touch with our church because of the love that they've experienced here. And it's a testimony that we are well-loved within the community and throughout the United States, and even to some extent through our missionaries around the world, that we receive love from other people. This mutual affection found in Christ for the Philippian church was part of what kept their partnership with Paul alive. And that's why Paul begins the letter talking about the love that he has for them, and it's why he sends men like Timothy and Epaphroditus across the ancient world to keep this partnership alive. Not only is love within the local church part of receiving the gospel, but love with the global fellowship of Christians demonstrates that Jesus did not just die for you or me, but he died for people all over the world. And it means that we should intentionally 
cultivate relationships with other churches and with missionaries. And so that's part of why I, as a pastor, take time to meet with other pastors who are even outside of our fellowship. So I see Ernesto every Tuesday. Sometimes I, and this week, I'm actually getting together with Wes over in Fenton because the partnership of Christians is bigger than just our church. And that's why the fellowship is a growing fellowship. Gospel fellowship is growing. Look at verse 22 with me. Paul says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, Paul says the saints in Caesar's household greet you. What is he talking about? Well, first, I I entitled this point in my outline, gospel fellowship is growing. But let me actually tweak that a little bit. I think it might be better to say people who trust in Jesus Christ always spread the gospel. People who trust in Jesus Christ always spread the gospel. So the Philippian church supported Paul because they experienced the joy of forgiveness and understood that they had peace with God through Jesus Christ. And so in joy, they contribute to his ministry that spread that good news to other people. And part of the reason that Paul wrote the letter to Philippians was to let the church that supported him know his ministry hadn't stopped just because he was in jail. In fact, just the opposite. He says, the gospel is advancing through my imprisonment. He says in 1.13, the gospel became known to the whole imperial guard. So the people who were chained to Paul and couldn't get away from him, naturally, he shared the gospel with him. Not only did they hear it directly from him, but if those in Caesar's household are greeting the Philippian church, it means when they were off duty, those who believed told other people throughout the government, officials in Caesar's government, what they had heard. And there were believers in Caesar's household. That means that the gospel spread outside of the house that Paul was imprisoned in and went to places in Rome he never would have gone. And so as those in Caesar's household turn and greet the Philippian church, they recognize, first, one of two things. First, they recognize that they heard the gospel because of believers that they had never met. So stay with me. Those in Caesar's household understand Paul is supported by a church in another city miles away. They recognize they owe a debt to those people they have never met. So as Paul writes them, they said, at least tell them, hi, we share in the same gospel fellowship. We love those people that we have never met. So the gospel fellowship has spread to people that the Philippians don't even know. Second, and more to the point for today, the people who heard the gospel because they were chained to Paul spread the gospel. So I said, I'd like this point to be people who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, people who trust in Jesus Christ, always spread the gospel. That was true of the people who believed as a result of Paul's imprisonment. And that that spread was possible because of the joy that the Philippian church had in Christ. And that joy motivated them to give sacrificially to support Paul's ministry. And my prayer is that our church would be like that. That we would love the gospel of Jesus Christ and spread it to our family, to our friends, 
to our neighbors and all around the world. And I pray that First Baptist Church of Holly would have a global vision for spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ so that people all over the world would be thankful for our church. So that as missionaries come to our church to visit, to tell us how their ministry is going, people that they are ministering to would say, could you tell them hi and we love them because we share in the same gospel and we've benefited from their heart and from their love of the Lord. I pray that we have a lasting legacy like that. Finally, the gospel that unites us all, unites us all through grace. Look with me at verse 23. The last thing that Paul says in this letter is, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now he says this to people who are already believers, but you don't stop needing grace the minute you're saved. Paul prays that they would continue to experience that grace, that they would continue to believe, and that they would continue to know that they rest in grace. And so these last words of Paul are a reminder of the way we were saved. It's grace. This grace is given to us by God, and this is the agent of our salvation, and it is the basis of our continued fellowship with God, and it's the basis of our continued fellowship with each other. If you, as someone who's here today, don't experience the joy that this letter talks about, it might be because you are not continuing in grace. So let me ask you, do you know that your sins are forgiven? Do you continue to wrestle with guilt? Are you walking in grace? Grace is God's favor for you that you don't deserve. It's not because you've been a good person. Grace is the promise of forgiveness through Jesus Christ, because of the blood of Christ. Your sins are paid for and they are covered. And they are covered once and for all. If you have trusted Jesus Christ for your salvation, that includes not only past sins, it includes future sins. And you can rest in that grace. And that grace should transform you who you are so that you become a person that extends grace to other people. And that grace should permeate the entire church so that it doesn't matter if you're young, if you're old, if you go to first service or second service. All that matters is that we share in the grace of Jesus Christ, and that should be enough for us to faithfully love each other. Grace allows us to have joy, like Paul said, because we know that we have peace with God, and we know that our Heavenly Father graciously works all things together for our good. Grace allows us to fellowship with a bunch of lousy sinners because each of us recognize that our sins are forgiven. Grace fills us with a desire to spread the good news of Jesus Christ so that those who are even beyond our community and outside it hear it. And so as we close the letter of Philippians, let me ask you, if you have trusted in the grace of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, does your life show evidence of that grace? And let me be more specific. Does the fellowship of our church demonstrate That grace is real to each of us. Is spreading the grace part of who you are? Do you want to give sacrificially to missions so that the good news of Jesus goes to places where it currently is not heard? Do you welcome people here? Do you work to love the people that you don't know? As we look at our church, can we say that our fellowship is based not around people who share our interests or like to go to the same vacation spots? Can you say that our fellowship is based around grace? 
It is the most natural thing in the world for people to get together based on shared interests. Car guys usually hang out with car guys. Jocks hang out with jocks. But the church of Jesus Christ should not be like that. The Bible says we are all one in Christ. It doesn't matter if you're a man, a woman, or young, or old. We should all celebrate the grace that we have in common in Christ. So we are not here to share our hobbies. We are here to worship Jesus and spread the gospel. Is that grace the center of who we are and what we do? As I close this message, I want to urge you to examine your own heart. And I want to urge all of us to be thinking about our church, to see if this is true. And my prayer is that we would have an incredible legacy of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. So that a hundred years from now, people would be able to look back and say, they were faithful in learning the scriptures. They were faithful in loving the gospel. And they were faithful in spreading the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would bless our fellowship, Lord. Where sin and selfishness hinders fellowship. I ask that you would help us to recognize that, to confess it, and to rest in forgiveness and change. Lord, we ask that you would fill us with joy, knowing that we have peace with you through Jesus Christ, knowing the confidence that our sins are forgiven. And I ask that you would bless us with a strong desire to to share and spread that message. In Jesus' name. Amen.